Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to chapter 47 of the Corona Diaries. And it could be the most complete episode we've done because there's been a change in your mouth. Oh, there has been a change in my mouth. Yes. I've got all my teeth back now. You've got all your teeth. I've had something chiselled in. It's been great. I'm very happy with it. Did it take long to put in in the end? Uh, yes. Yeah. Did it? Yeah, it was, a lo- it was a long and protracted affair. Right. It, I mean, it started off... Once the dentist was open, which took six months because of, yes, last year's lockdown, um, then then he pulled out the root of the tooth because it had just broken off. Uh, so I needed an extraction. So we did an extraction and then I had to wait while that healed up, which was a month or two. Then we got he got this superstar implantist who came over from Cambridge in a very nice car uh, and he he did the implant which is where they kind of get a hammer drill and <laughs> drill a big hole in your skull and um, put this thing in um, and then sew it and sew it up you know like they put stitches in your gums didn't hurt in fact, the worst bit about it, what was the worst bit about it? Um, well, the assistant kept leaning on my face. That was the worst bit about it. Um, and um, they put this thing in that then looked like almost like a press stud in my mouth. But then they also, at the same time, they stick some paste in that turns slowly into bone over time. So if you're listening to this and you're a bit squeamish, I would have a sit down at this point. Don't ride a bicycle because I don't want anybody falling under a truck on account of my mouth paste. Uh, So they put that in and then I needed another three months while that fused and turned into bone. So that took me right through to last week. Oh, no, it didn't. It took me right through to February. Uh, waiting for that with a thing that looked like a press stud in me, me mouth, um, and then, um, then, then I had to go in, and the press study bit sort of screwed. It's just a little cap, and it unscrews, and there's a female thread inside. If the feminists would pardon me using that term, and um, then they screw a, a sort of a a post into that and then they take impressions of your mouth with some gooey stuff 
And when he came to pull the impressions off, he said, now these are very sticky, so they'll take a bit of pulling. And I thought, oh, my God, I bet I'm going to have another couple of teeth come off. You know, if, if, if he takes this out and I've got another two missing, <laughs> I'd be so depressed. Anyway, they were still all in. Um, so then they send that away and to some geniuses who make, who make you a tooth that's the right shape and the right colour. That took another two and a half weeks and that takes me up to last Thursday, at which point I went in and he, he screwed it in. But they screw it in with a torque wrench. It's a bit like, you know, doing a cylinder head. Right. Um, that makes your eyes water. <laughs> <laughs> Pass me the wrench. You don't want to hear that in a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> or the saw, you know, any of those things you don't any want of, to, Any of the Things you don't want to hear in a dentist. No, no. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want anything coming out of a toolbox, do you? You don't. You don't want the, you don't want the clanging of metal coming out of a toolbox. But there was. And uh, he, so he tightened it up with a wrench uh, while I kind of went, oh, I can, I, I can actually feel that. And he said, oh, hang on, I'll put a bit more stuff in. So he kept putting more and more numbing stuff, you know, mm. in my in my gum. Anesthetic. Anesthetic. That's exactly the word. Oh, Lord, give us the anesthetic. Um, I was scared to mention it in case you went off for a little stroll with it and we lost you. I did minutes. go for a brief stroll then. I, I was back in the Colours Not Found in Nature album because I, I did use the word anaesthetic in that, in that lyric. Um, anyway, so I had, I'd popped to Sweden and now I'm back. Um, and that was it. He screwed it in and um, <laughs> he was saying to the assistant, oh, you know, they make those noises. Because you're not asleep, you can hear everything that's going on. And he sort of put it in and he went, oh, oh. And then they're going, murmur, 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 murmur to each other behind me. I'm thinking, oh, shit. It's not right, is it? Oh, no, it's not right. It's not right. It's upside and down. Murmur, murmur. Yet somebody else's. <laughs> Sent the wrong one. Be Brenda's. Bound to be Brenda's. <laughs> They sent the wrong one, it's a molar, you know, and it's in the front. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cut a long story short. He got it all screwed in and then they both went, oh, oh, oh. And that cheered me up a lot. Right. And then they showed me it in the mirror and I said, it's great. You'd never mm. know. You know, no. you can't re really tell which one it is. I mean, I, I can, but only because I'm used to where the gap is. I could probably guess just knowing where the gap is. But no, you're where, right. You where can't. is it? <laughs> well, it's that one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a crazy start to the episode. Mm. Right. Um, anyway, anyway, you're all full of mouth. Yes, enough of my teeth. <laughs> yes. Um, and... And, and no cliffhanger last week. Uh, mm, we, we, you know, there was no end of season finale last week. You were, you were, you were in the band, though. Still, some some slight um, uh, confusion as to when actually you started in the band. Mm. 
but 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 I think you know I think thirty years later I think it doesn't really matter if we knew to the precise day. Um, no. So, uh, but we were going to carry on a little bit because that that was quite a that's a full on Marillion year, isn't it? Nineteen eighty nine. It's almost legendary. Um, because we were just chatting before we started. There's they start off the year without a singer. Um, <laughs> they end up with a singer only a day after they thought they were going to. Um, <laughs> And but then it's then it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a loving as you all get to know each other. Then there's some more writing. Then there's recording sessions. Then there's an album. Then there are promo videos. And then there's a tour. And that all, to a certain extent, happens or at least starts in '89. Yep. Yeah, it was an amaz- It was an amazing year. Um, I think we went off to the mushroom farm, probably. I think it might have been the end of Jan. Um, They'd got a lot of music already and they'd got quite a lot of lyrics on facts, sheets of faxes, but, you know, that John had written. Um, And um, I'd got, you know, a couple of things in the bucket (laughs) and a couple of things I was inadvertently sort of nicking from my back catalogue. Um, and by, I don't know, I think we were only there about three weeks and we'd, we'd, we'd kind of felt like we'd written Seasons then. Mm. And EMI came down and they had a listen to a couple of songs and they were happy. So, yeah, that a few people came, the, the odd journalist came down and then others, I mean, one funny, one funny thing from that, um, from that session was, you know, me getting used to Steve Rothery and, and his kind of, his way of operating. <laughs> we, were all, we, were all in the, we were all in the studio one day playing away, knocking through something, and uh, he put his guitar, took his guitar off, put it on a stand, walked out, the, walked out the room. Didn't say anything to anyone. And uh, I said to the band, where's he gone? And they all said, who? And I said, Steve. Oh, oh well, I don't know, they all said. I said, well, he's gone. They said, yeah. And that I found that peculiar and they found it completely normal. <laughs> um I'd never worked with anyone before who would just leave a room without saying, I'm just going to, you know, oh, oh, left the oven on, or I need a pee, or shit, I've got to make an urgent phone call, you know, or I've got to take an urgent phone or something. Um, so, so I found that strange, and they found it strange that I found it strange. And they were going, well, well what's the matter? And I said, well, it's just gone. And they went, well, I said, well, is he coming back? And they said, well, I don't know. I thought it was all my, you know, as though I was being weird until I started to think it, maybe it was me. Uh, <laughs> and I, so I said, well, shall I go and get him? And they went, well, if you like. So I, I go out 
I go out of the studio into this sort of reception area. He's nowhere to be seen. I look out the window and his car's not in the car park. And he'd got in his car and driven away. So I go back to the studio and I say, his car's not in the car park. And they all go, oh. Oh, well, where's he gone? Well, I don't know. <laughs> so that took a while to get used. That took a few years, actually, <laughs> to get used to <laughs> this sort of sense of it being a bit fluid. Um, you know, that somebody could just get in a car and drive off. Drive off. In the middle of something. But that's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, there's a reason people get into bands in the first place, and that's because quite often it's because they don't really function <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> so uh, that took me a while to get used to, you know, the sense of Steve just occupying his own universe, doing his own thing and not feeling the need to explain anything. He's a man of few words. Um, to this day, you know, it's it's very rare to get an email from him with more than about four words in it. Um, unless you ask him about a MIDI interface, then you get several paragraphs. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's fascinated by technology. Um so that took a bit of getting used to. Anyway, I digress. So we we did um, we did, we did about three weeks, if that, at the Mushroom Farm, and declared that we'd kind of got an album. Mm. And then Rothers walked in one day with this <laughs> with this pamphlet, um, this uh, this pamphlet, this glossy glossy. Um, what would you call it? Well, glossy sort of pamphlet. Brochure? Um, I'll keep saying pamphlet until right, you then. say brochure and then I'll yeah. go brochure. That's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. Um, for Hook End Manor Studios. Oh, and he's going, what about this? This looks nice. And we're all going, well, that looks very nice. And he's, going, he's, he's saying, well, I think we should make the album there. And we're all going, yeah, I think we should. And... Uh, so we we ran that past the management and they said they'd woodbook it and i think we we got into hook end can it have been march in my head it's march mm. can't have been that soon can it maybe it was right well if i mean if you said 3 weeks at mushroom Mm. Uh, so that only takes us to sort that's of February, isn't it? So. End of Feb, yeah. So it might have been. It was the ninth of something. It was either yeah. the ninth of March or the ninth of April, but I think it was the ninth of March in nineteen eighty-nine, and it was an uncommonly warm spring. Right. Um, it was just glorious. The sun came out the day we moved in, and every day was glorious until we left. Mm. Um, I don't think we had one rainy day. We just had open blue sky and sunshine. It was like dying and going to heaven. I was in this room called the um, the Oriental Room. Each of the rooms in this manor house had kind of been theme decorated. So my room was the Oriental Room and was all, you know, I called it the Opium Den. I put a, put a sign on the door 
and it had big oriental sort of pots and vases in it and orient and dragons and stuff on the curtains and i put my cp70 electric grand piano at the bottom of the bed there was ample room um and what was really great about... There was two things that were great about Hooking. I mean, apart from the studio, which was great, um, and the swimming pool, which was great, and the weather, which was great, but there were two really great things about Hooking. One was that somebody did your washing. So, Always a bonus. Oh, man. So you had a pillowcase, and you would stick your dirty washing in the pillowcase, and it would vanish mid-afternoon. And the following morning, it would all be ironed on the bottom of your bed. Oh. It was just blissful. Um, and the other good thing about Hookend <laughs> was there was a team of girls who used to, like, cook and make you club sandwiches and pims and stuff. Um, and they had a little car. And they would take you to the pub in the evening drop you off and then come and pick you up afterwards. So you'd be in the pub, <laughs> chilling out, drinking, talking rubbish, getting tiddly, and then you'd call in the airstrike and, and they'd, they'd, they'd come in, pick you up and take you back to the studio. Oh, my Lord, yeah. how civilised. So they were the two really great things about Hook and, and amongst a lot of other great things. And I just used to flounce around the place in a big white shirt like Lord Byron. Mm. Which, uh, you know. which, let's be honest, it was what you were born for. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yes. <laughs> so, so I used to lie on the lawn with me, with me little Walkman, you know, my cassette Walkman, listening to, listening to the music. In my, um, what were they? Who made Walkmans? Were they Sony? Sony, yeah, my little Sony. Remember those headphones that had the little spongy pads? Yeah. That, went, that came with, uh, with, with Walkmans. I used to lie, lie there in my headphones, the little spongy pads, listening to, the, listening to the album and listening to some of the old music to try, you know, to try and cram the lyrics for when we did live stuff. And then I used to sit by the swimming pool. I bought a blaster and used to sit listening to Slave to the Rhythm and addicted to love um, by the swimming pool, um, drinking pims. And I was in that very position, doing that very thing one afternoon, when a policeman and a man in a suit crossed the lawn, approached me and said... Are you Mark Colbert Kelly? And I went, nope. <laughs> Are you Stephen Rothery? I went, nope. Are you by any chance Ian Francesco Mosley? I went, nope. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd got a, they'd got a, what do they call it? A writ. Mm. They wanted to serve us with a writ. Uh, Fisher's lawyers had. Um, decided to serve us with a writ to stop us working uh, because I think they were, I don't know what they were arguing over, they were arguing over something, whether or not we were Marillion or he was or, or I don't know what they were arguing over or money or equipment or whatever, but for whatever it was, his lawyers had decided the way forward was to serve us with a writ and stop us from working. <laughs> 
Um, but because I was new and wasn't part of the old band, legally they couldn't stop me from working. Um, well, well, which in my case couldn't stop me from sitting See, by a swimming pool. pool listening to Slave <laughs> to the Rhythm. <laughs> So, How much would that have put the album back? <laughs> so so um, I said, well, I said, I'm not any of those, but I can, I can, I can fire, I could round them up for you if you like. And they said, yes, that'd be, there's policemen all in, in uniform, you know, and all of that, and, and, a, and a solicitor. So uh, I, I went and I got Mark. Oh, I said, there's a, policeman and a lawyer trying to serve you a writ he went oh oh let me get a video recorder so he went and got a video recorder and he came out, he came out with the camera and he said to the policeman you got any handcuffs and the policeman said well yeah he said oh could you just sort of dangle them about threateningly <laughs> so this cop is waving his handcuffs about. Mark's video in it. I'm drinking pims. And this lawyer's standing there with a brown envelope. Um, and they served, they served us with a writ. I think I gave them a pims and then they cleared off again. <laughs> uh, that was quite amusing. <laughs> well, they wouldn't have found Rollers, would they? I mean, he'd, he'd, have, he'd have popped off somewhere. <laughs> and then there was another night. I was... I was uh, asleep. I was asleep in bed in my um, Oriental room with my heavy, heavy maroon velvet curtains drawn, and I was awoken by by some kind of noise and chaos going on. I could see blue lights flashing through the slit in the curtains, and Mark had set all the fire alarms off in the um, in the studio. He was testing out. Um, a new burner for his hot air balloon in the uh, in in the control room, and he'd been drilling out drilling out the nozzle in this camping gas stove because he couldn't get enough flame, and then testing it, bolts of flame were flying into the air. But of course, this being a recording studio, it was bristling with smoke alarms and God knows what, and they all went off, and they were connected to the main fire station at Henley. Um, and apparently once once the alarm goes off in the fire station, even if you phone them up and you go, oh, it's all right, it's nothing, they have to come out. So this fire, fire, um, what are they called? Things that firemen travel in? Tenders? Engine. engine. This fire engine, this big red fire engine, was parked in the courtyard under my bedroom window with the blue lights going around and all these, all these firemen were there with all the gear on and the helmets and everything. Um, and I kind of gingerly looked through the curtain and thought, I'm not getting involved in that. And I went back to bed. Um, and it turned out the following morning um, they'd all turned up and they all had, well, they were all a bit aware. They all had West Country accents. And, oh, you know that Dave Gilmore used to own this place, you know. Oh, I remember. Um, and... Um, they Are you trying to, to say that the Wurzels were the, were the fire crew that popped <laughs> they, round? They, they wanted to hear some of the album. So apparently they're all sat in the control room while Mark's playing and what we've recorded with their feet up and their helmets on, all talking about barn fires, 
Oh, this is Jim. When he first joined us, he didn't even know how to. He didn't even know what to do with a barn fire. Oh, we did laugh, and all of this. Um, and Mark said, "Well, what do you do with a barn fire?" He said, "Oh, nothing. You can't do anything with a barn fire. You just let it burn." Uh, so apparently, that's what to do with a barn fire. If, if if anyone out there is ever thinking of joining the fire brigade in a rural area, or indeed has a barn. Or indeed, as a barn <laughs> bursting into flames. Um, stand well back. Don't even bother phoning anyone, basically. Um, so that was another interesting thing that happened. There. And 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 another interesting thing that happened at Hooken was the hot air balloons, of course, which, which Mark was working on at that point. We started off fairly low-tech. Ian had this friend who... In, who who used to make hot air balloons out of balsa wood and birthday cake candles and um, dry cleaning bags. Those ones they put over suits. When right. you get your suit dry cleaned, you get like a bag, a really flimsy bag, don't you? Well, Ian had this mate who'd shown him how to make hot air balloons like that. So we sent, again, we sent the girls off into Henley while we were working. Go and buy balsa wood dry cleaning bags. And birthday cake candles, and they went, we were, we shall, and off they went in their car. And they came back with uh, all this balsa wood and these candles and, and the, these dry cleaning bags. And we set up a little production line in the kitchen. Um, meanwhile, Grubby, our um, monitor man at the time, had seen fit to move into Hook End Manor, thinking it, it was better than where he lived. So uh, he... He, he'd purloined his own room and he'd gone to the local pub, which happened to be the um, the Crooked Billet when we ended up doing the gig in. He'd gone there and he'd chatted up an Australian waitress. Um, and so he arrived, he'd got talking to her. She was quite glamorous. And uh, he'd said that he was in the local manor house with a rock band. Um, and would she like to come and meet them? So she said she would. I think she'd imagined a kind of Bon Jovi situation, and and so they came they came in through the kitchen door, and Grubby was going. Um, I can't remember what her name was. You know, whatever her name, Christine or whatever her name was. Christine, this is uh, this is the band, and not one of us looked up because we were so wrapped. You know, we, we were so concentrated on super gluing our birthday cake candles to these pieces of wood. There was just this hive of activity. These five guys frantically um, gluing candles to bits of wood, and I don't think anybody even said hello to her. So she must have been quite. She must have thought. They're a bit of an odd rock and roll band, aren't they? Um, so you you would you would glue the candles to the wood, and, uh, and you'd, you'd glue these two slats of wood into a cross, and then you would stretch the dry cleaning suit bag over them, and then you'd kind of gingerly hold it out of the way, light all the candles, and then they'd go up, they'd go up beautifully into the night air, in a little cross of light, really, really lovely. So we did a lot of that. And then uh, it wasn't enough for Mark, so then he wanted space blankets and camping gas stoves and God knows what. And uh, we upscaled the whole thing into space blankets, coat hangers, and God knows what. And, and we used to, we used to set the we used to set this big we made this big silver balloon. 
with his camping gas stove hanging under it. We used to set it off and then we had a red van and we all used to jump into this red van and drive across Oxfordshire following it and waiting for the gas to run out because then it would come back down. We'd bundle it back into the van and take it back back to Hook End. Um, so we were doing that as well in the evenings after we'd finished work. It was it was a really special time, um, and so we <laughs> we finished the album. That was with Nick Davis. We finished the album and delivered that. We finished it off in uh, a studio called Westside Studios, which was in Notting Hill. We did a bit more there, and I think he mixed it at Westside in the end. Um, Why does that come and, about then? Why do you do you? What do you do? Do you get so far at hook end and go? Well, we reckon we're about done, and then and then Nick does some more work and and, and you... yeah, he wouldn't have really needed the band to be constantly present for the mixes, so it would have been a bit of a waste of money to have us all languishing in a manor house while he was mixing. So uh, we, no, not that we were. Uh, it, not that we were thrifty in any way at that time, quite the reverse. But um, nonetheless, um, it was it was deemed prudent to um, to get out of there and mix it somewhere else that was a bit cheaper. Um, West Side wasn't residential, so it was it wasn't as dear. It was about half the price, I think. Yeah. But it was, I think it was affiliated to Hook End at the time because Clive Langer and Alan Wynne Stanley, who produced Madness, they owned Hook End and I think they also owned West Side. So, you know, they'd suggested we mix there. Um, and before Langer and Wynne Stanley owned Hook End, um, Dave Gilmore had owned it and before him, Alvin Lee from 10 years after. Wow. And after Langer and Winstanley, uh, Trevor Horn bought it. And it became his home and studio for a while as well. Um, so quite quite a history, mm. that place. In fact, when we did Holidays in Eden with Chris Neal, uh, we, we recorded that at Hook End as well. We went back. And Alvin Lee popped in one night and we had a chat with him. He was a nice fellow. Mm. Uh, every time Alvin got divorced, he used to give another house away. I've worked in a few of Alvin's houses. <laughs> He'd got <laughs> studios in all of them, and they're now all owned by his ex-wives. <laughs> I think he, he probably lives in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> so we, so yeah, we, so we finished. Uh, we finished season's end, and then, as you say, we, we made some videos. We went off to Brixton Academy and uh, recorded a sort of pretend live video for, for Hooks and You, you know, a performance, band on stage, me, you know, jumping about, trying to be a rock star. And uh, the only thing I remember about that was that a lot of the guys in the front row were wearing sort of sleeveless Levi jackets with lots of patches on. Mm thinking, blimey, mm. that's a bit heavy metal, isn't it? Yeah, a bit, yeah, a bit status quo, that, isn't it? Meanwhile, I was mincing around in a Paul Smith <laughs> denim suit. Yeah. Not denim, uh, sorry, wash your mouth. Uh, a, a, a Paul Smith linen. I was I was 
grooving yeah. around in. Um, and, uh, and I left my wallet on the seat of the car in Brixton High Street. And I hadn't locked the car either. I left, I left my wallet on the passenger seat. And uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't stolen. It was still there when I got mm. I had a bit of a panic. Shit, where's my wallet? Couldn't find it anywhere. I had a total panic. Ended up back out in the street, and there it was on the passenger seat. And oh, I better lock the car as well while I'm at it. You found the car though. I found the car. Oh. Was where I'd left it. Oh, well, well we, no. To be fair, your car's always been where you left it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's what I remember about that. Um, and then we went off to to Ireland to make the Easter video as well with uh, Paul Cox. Paul was lovely. He, he was a stills photographer, really. Paul Cox. He was one of the one of the go-to stills photographers for the music business back then. Um, and uh, he directed the Easter video, and we did that on the Giants Causeway, the Antrim Coast, and uh, in, in the north of Ireland, and frozen stiff. I'd got my wife's tights on under my trousers because it was so cold and this sort of, and several layers in this sort of dusky pink duffel coat that I'd bought in Windsor that was Paul Smith as well uh, and um, we got back to the hotel and the Berlin Wall was coming down that was the the same day so when was the when was the hooks in you video can you remember a month it must have been, it feels, it must have been late summer. Right. Or early autumn, round about then. Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. I've not been to Brixton Academy much. I went there to shoot that. I've seen Massive Attack there twice, but I think that I can't remember. I very nearly saw the police there rehearsing for the Synchronicity Tour. And something happened and I never went. But I was invited down there by A&M. And somehow, what happened? Or maybe they were rehearsing and maybe we got there and they decided to have the day off for... They'd probably had a fight. They were always fighting. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody probably punched someone else and declared an early night. <laughs> <laughs> So I never got to see that, which was a shame. <laughs> I'm going to come over there, I'm going to punch you, and I'm going for a light supper. Yeah, I, I reckon that was par, par for the course. Of course. With, with, with the police, <laughs> from what I've heard. <laughs> the fights were legendary. I knew one of their tour managers once, and he said I, I had to, he said I had to put them in different hotels. I couldn't even put them in the same, on different floors of the same hotel. He said they really couldn't stand one another. Least, uh, I just can't get my head around that. Isn't it really? a shame? Yeah. It's a shame. I remember sitting, I was sitting last, was that last year or year before at the Prog Awards? I was sat with Andy Summers. Um, I thought, wow, Andy Summers. And I, and I sat, they put, they put me at the table next to him. I thought, God, I've got to tell him. I've got to I've got to tell him about the guitar on T in the Sahara because it's just incredible. It's so visual. Um, I can see the desert whenever I hear it, and uh, I just wanted to tell him how amazing it was. 
And I thought, now I know they never really got on, so maybe I shouldn't say anything. Um, and then I thought, I know what I'll say. And I said, Andy, you know, you know, out of everything you've done over the years, what, what do you feel is your, your best work? You know, what are you most proud of? In the hope that he'd say, oh, that guitar. <laughs> and I'd go, yeah, isn't it amazing? Uh, and he just went, well, nothing I ever did with that fucking band. <laughs> and I went, oh. I thought, well, what a good job I didn't mention that. <laughs> For once, I didn't, I didn't say the thing, <laughs> the worst thing. Uh, uh, you see, what a I, response. Yeah. I thought, oh. Oh. Oh, OK, all right. <laughs> In which case, time, Andy, would you pass the bread roll? Time heals all wounds. <laughs> time is indeed a great healer. Um, let, let's just spear off and have a bit of a bit of diary. Um, and you're back in you're back in the UK, aren't you? You're back doing brave in the UK. Yes. Um, and we're going to pursue around City Hall. Uh, in my, yeah. Well. Yeah, that was where I decided to to be a you know I mean a rock musician watching yeah. Deep Purple. I had my epiphany and you know, was never the same again. No. And it's a fantastic venue. Mm. It's a yeah, really I, beautiful hall. Really, really beautiful hall. I saw so many bands there when I was about 17. Mm. I think Deep Purple was the first one. And then, yes, on Fragile, Close to the Edge. Genesis on just about all their tours. Um, nursery Crime, Foxtrot, what came after that? can't remember um selling england by the pound wind and weathering not wind and weathering um the lamb lies down on broadway i saw them do that i think it's sheffield city hall i saw focus there um status quo so quo mm. there so uriah heap there rory gallagher mm. i think this is all in the diary i'm about yeah, to read yeah, but, but i do yeah. i do remember seeing seeing all of these bands but but deep purple first and having my mind completely blown and thinking wow nothing is better than that mm. best gig i've ever seen at sheffield city hall was the lightning sea oh actually no because i saw i saw neil finn there as well and he was pretty he was pretty special yeah he, uh, he's, a, he's amazing live i mean crowded uh, house are fabulous yeah yeah they were very good but the lightning seeds also were exceptional there um ian brody Yes, Mike knows that lot quite well. I've never met... Have I met them? I might have met Ian Brody, actually, come to think of it somewhere. But um, Mike, Mike, our producer, he knows that mm. lot because they used to be in and out of Bar Street quite a lot. Yeah, I'd imagine they would be. Yeah, be that, it's that neck of the woods, isn't it? Mm. But um, anyway, we'll go and have a bit of diary and then we'll come back and uh, and, and wrap it up. Okie dokie. Let me take you to Sheffield. Monday, 9th of May, Sheffield City Hall. Spent the morning at home with Dizzy and Nile. Sophie came home for lunch and I took them both to the park round the corner for a slide and a swing before Hargreaves went back to school. I threw a few things into the boot of the car and drove up to Sheffield. It was a nice day for a drive and the roads weren't too busy. 
I arrived in Sheffield around 3.30 and found my way to the City Hall, parking the car alongside the truck. I went into the building through a side door and sat down to a spot of late lunch with Ian and Pete. There was much talk of starting up a catering division of Racket Enterprises, as Emma and Helen are looking around for a backer so they can go it alone. I went back out looking for shampoo and conditioner at Boots and the Body Shop. These are the things I have trouble getting hold of in Europe, and it was my first chance to restock. I returned to the venue to sound check. The hall is quite a design achievement. The balconies swing around in a circular arc below a ceiling of glass panels with an electric cover to let in or block out natural light depending on the production requirements. This is the venue I was sitting in when I decided to become a rock and roll star, ha ha, all those years ago. I was gazing in excited disbelief at Deep Purple performing their Machine Head album. They were making noises I had never heard before. Nobody had. And the energy and commitment before me left my senses reeling and my brain asking the question, surely everything else is worse than this. Why, given the choice, would you want to do anything else with your life? I was to return many times in my following school years to see Yes, Genesis, Uriah Heep, Focus, Rory Gallagher and status quo. I'm always struck by the sense of the dream having become real when I'm on this particular stage. Of course, I still feel there's much to achieve, and the elusive gold album beckons frustratingly, but I know such goals lose much of their meaning once scored. For now, life is surely sweet enough. Well, it still is. Drove my car up the street to the Grosvenor Hotel with Pete, parking in the hotel car park and checking in with my trusty bowl of pineapple and honey before climbing into bed for the all-important pre-show shutdown. Later, I returned on foot, walking up the hill to the city hall, still carrying my fruit bowl, to be met outside the hall by Nick B, who pronounced that I was becoming eccentric. I took it as a compliment. The show was a little strange. The audience were deathly quiet during the new album and barely any more responsive during the encores. My voice felt in good form and I thought we played well, but we couldn't help remembering the thermonuclear response at Leeds just down the road and making comparisons with the silence here at Sheffield. Strange. After the show, I showered and said hello to old school friends and my mum and dad before returning to the hotel. As I entered my unwelcoming room at around 1.30, I decided I might as well drive home. The roads were clear and I made it back by three. Tuesday, 10th of May, home. Can't remember much about today. I'm sure I probably got up late again. I spent a couple of hours in the garden mowing the lawn. It was another sunny day, and after Sophie came home from school, we went down to the canal at Clifton for tea and ice creams. Niall fell face first off the slide into the gravel and cut his lip, bless him. He's almost permanently injured. Chip off the old block. Put the kids to bed, nothing on the telly, had an early night. 
Wednesday, 11th of May. Oxford Apollo. Spent the morning at home again with Dizzy and Niall. Sophie came home for dinner and sat outside in the garden with Niall eating sandwiches in the sunshine. It was a lovely day. When Sophie finished school for the day, we all climbed into the car and drove to Oxford for sound check at the Apollo. This was the first time Sophie and Niall had seen what I do firsthand, so they were both very excited. I took them onto the stage and Niall had a go on the drums. For a two-year-old, he was remarkably in control of the sticks. When we ran through Lap of Luxury, they sat in the circle, clapping and blowing kisses. Bless them. It was lovely. After soundcheck, Sue took them home and was to return for the show with her girl chums from Aino. It had become a beautiful afternoon, so after my family went home, I went for a stroll, picking up a few fans as I walked, and went to the pub for a pint of 6x. We stood out in the street in the evening sunshine, chatting before I returned to the gig. In the event, I was quite embarrassed that the neighbours should come to this one. It hadn't sold particularly well. The stalls were sold out, but the balcony was empty apart from my guests, who must have felt awfully alone. We gave it our best, and I was happy with my performance. I was singing well after the day off, but the audience was terribly reserved and quiet throughout the show. Quite usual for Oxford. Halfway through the first encore, they had come to life. I remember saying to them, maybe we should start again now. After the show, I showered and chatted to the Aino girls who all seemed to have enjoyed themselves. Annette said it was the best gig she'd ever seen and Eloisa, the Brazilian, said, I was a king. She had been drinking. On our way from the gig to the car, we chatted to a couple from Philadelphia who had seen used guys, at the Chestnut Cabaret on the last tour. I think he was called Jimmy. He was born in Scotland and had decided to return from America. It's a rat race there, man. We wandered back to the car and drove home to relieve Natalie, who had been babysitting. She's learnt to drive and split up with her boyfriend. Thursday, 12th of May, Manchester Apollo. Got up late around 11.30. Dizzy had let me have a lie-in, bless her. Niall sat on my lap for a while watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, his current favourite. Since our return from Europe, he's been a little less possessive of his mum and seems happy to be with me. I remember Sophie hitting the same age where she would first come to me and be affectionate. Heaven. Sophie came home from school for lunch and joined us watching the movie while eating pickle sandwiches, her favourite. Nick, John and Jack arrived at around 1.30 to pick me up and we drove to Manchester, reflecting on the progress of Brave and what might and might not have been. John filled us in on the forthcoming schedule in Japan, Central and South America. When we arrived at the Victoria and Albert Hotel, Sandra Casali from EMI Press was waiting in reception with a journalist and photographer from Today newspaper. They seemed okay. Checked into room 404. All the rooms here are named after various Granada TV productions. Granada is just across the road. Mine was called A Breakthrough in Reykjavik. 
and there were photographs on my wall of some play or other which was about Gorbachev and Reagan having a summit meeting. Went to the Apollo to soundcheck. Our photographer friend was snapping away while the journalist picked our brains. Apparently, as a consequence of the, quote, hysteria, i.e. the extraordinary depth of feeling, following Kurt Cobain's death, the editor had decided to do an investigative piece on rock fanaticism. Well, they chose the right band if they were looking to research the mentality of an obsessively caring audience, as opposed to the kind of juvenile pop hysteria which is perhaps the stereotype. We sat in catering while I introduced the crew and described how the whole show works. They came to the stage for a guided tour of the back line during soundcheck, then went outside to interview the fans while we returned to the hotel. I went to bed in my Reykjavik room for a pre-show recharge before returning to the Apollo for what was to be a well-received show. Paul and Annie Lewis came back to say hello. Paul's looking five years younger than he did last year. The show went well. We gave a good account of ourselves and the crowd were really vocal. A noticeable and welcome change after the sedate Guildford and Oxford crowds. After the show... I showered up and went downstairs looking for my old chum, Angie Fountain, but she'd left. I went outside and signed stuff for people for about 20 minutes before returning to the hotel where we sat in the bar with John A., Joe Rothery, Sandra and the journalists drinking beer and eating bacon and marmalade sandwiches until around 1.30 before retiring to bed. Friday, 13th of May, Newcastle City Hall. Checked out of the Victoria and Albert and had a coffee in the bar with Ian, Pete, Lorraine, Sandra and Mark, the photographer, before we bundled into the three cars for the drive to Newcastle. Lorraine went with Steve, Ian and Mark to interview them during the journey. Got a bit lost in the one-way system when we arrived in Newcastle and had to break a few traffic laws before finding the Copthorne Hotel. I was to go overnight to Nottingham tonight, so I wasn't checking in. Mark wanted a photograph of me unpacking my bags in a hotel room, so I borrowed Nick B's room and unpacked his bags instead, while Mark snapped away before driving to the Newcastle City Hall for food and soundcheck. The hall was larger than I remembered. After soundcheck we went outside to do a band photograph with Lorraine and then I went for a snooze on the bus, leaving her in the dressing room with my laptop so she could have a read through my diary. The show went well. I don't remember any particular highs or problems. It was a good night, but obviously not outstanding. If you're reading this diary, you might by now be wondering how I seem to concentrate on the events of the day rather than the shows themselves. The fact is that the shows tend to erase themselves from my memory as they happen. I think it's the adrenaline. It's a very similar process to dreaming. No matter how intense the dream, all but a very few, and then it's an inexplicably random selection, are remembered. I tend to remember the technical problems with greater clarity than even the most brilliant moments. If I damage myself in some way, falling off the stage, twisting ankles, ricking my neck, breaking teeth, etc., I tend to remember that too. After the show, I chatted to our agent, Ian Huffam, who's just out of hospital 
from a detached appendix. He nearly died, and although claiming to be fully recovered, looked very weak. I told him he should be at home in bed. It's a funny business, rock and roll. If he worked for EMI, he'd probably have stayed off work for months. Thank you, Ian. I was in no hurry to leave the gig, as I was going overnight with the crew, so I hung around in the dressing room with John Wesley and the girls from a French fan club who wanted to know what I wanted for my birthday tomorrow. I told them, socks, fireworks and a can of beans. And we're back. And I've got a question based on the diary, uh, which is kind of fortunate because otherwise this section would be a bit shit. Um, <laughs> Not necessarily. I, I'm sure we'd think of some something. Yeah, something wonderful. Something. Well, we could carry on talking about the Tower of London, which is what we were talking we were, about a second ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, crack on, crack on. All right, I'll let's, crack on. Let's not get into the Tower of London. No, no. Here's my question then. Here's my question. My question is, uh, we're on the Brave Tour, we're in Sheffield. Um, my neck of the woods, my... my. It's, I mean, I wasn't born there, but it's my adopted city, Sheffield. Uh, and um, And you said that the Sheffield audience was quite quiet, hmm. and yet the Leeds audience which you maintain is probably the best of the gigs on the UK leg of the Brave Tour. In my memory, yeah, that was... I remember that being just fabulous, the, mm. the, the Leeds Town and Country. I've never been back there since. Um, but, of course, that had more of a club vibe, whereas, you, you know, I've probably been a, being a bit harsh on Sheffield City Hall because it's, it's, it's a theatre. Everybody mm. sat down... And when you're sat down, you, you, the very process of being sat down, you just sit and listen. You know, mm. it puts you in a... Oh, I'm the same if I go. It puts you in a frame of mind for, you know, shut up, listen and enjoy the, mm. the, an experience. Uh, whereas when you're in a club stood up, you, you're in a different frame of mind. Everything's a bit larrier. Um, and you get caught up in the atmosphere that everybody else is caught up in. Mm. So usually theatre shows are much more, it's a much more sedate response from the crowd and it doesn't mean you're not going down well, it just means they're, they're, they're shutting up and listening instead of yahooing about the place. And And I don't know why I would complain because... Brave is the kind of show where you need to shut up and listen. You don't really want anybody yee-hawing and whooping and hollering. You want people to listen. You know, I can't sing the Hollow Man or, or, or Brave if if, if people <laughs> are making if <laughs> if people are making a row in Finland. In Run Finland. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. No. Unless it actually is Vic Reeves. I mean, if Vic Reeves is doing it, you'd give him a little bit of leeway, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. But outside of Vic. Yeah, I've not seen him do Brave yet, but there's still time. <laughs> oh, oh he'll, he'll get to Brave. He'll get to Brave. That would be a now, tough question. So in, so in subsequent years then, uh, uh, the Sheffield thing, because I've been to lots of gigs in Sheffield and normally the audiences were fairly, you know, Fairly full on. So I'm assuming if you played somewhere different in Sheffield, it'd be a different 
sort of vibe? Because you did the university, didn't you? You played that a couple of times, and you've played. Yeah, you've, you've done, done the international shows there. Yeah, I've done the lead. I think. I think we. I think we did the lead mill on the radiation tour as a band. I think. Mm. Um, and I, I can't remember what it was like. I think it was all right. Mm. Um, because you fell into a pattern of doing Leeds and Manchester, didn't you? You fell into a pattern of doing of doing what was the old Leeds Poly, yeah, uh, the Met University, and then in, into the pattern of doing of doing Manchester. Um, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Um, and um, I don't know why that is. Not it's because the academy in Manchester always offered us a really good deal on the mm. whole. And so it was much, it made much more business sense to do the academy than it did to go and do anywhere else. It happened to be the right sized room. Yeah. At the right price. Uh, and just happened to be available when we needed it. And sometimes it just boils down to availability, of course. If you kind mm. of go, well, on this tour, let's not do Manchester, let's do Liverpool because Liverpool's always great. You know, there's always a vibe. The Manx will travel. Um, mm. The Scousers won't complain because they won't have to go to Manchester because that pisses them off. They take it personally, although it's not personal. Let's do Liverpool. And then, you know, if it's not available, it ain't available. So no. it's as much down to availability as anything else. But the Academy, we've always managed to, to, to get when we've needed it. Um and that that gig at Leeds Uni is is sort of on the circuit as well. So yeah. we've tended to go and play there. Although the stage is very small at Leeds Uni, we yeah, always have a lot of we're very unpopular with our lighting folk whenever we play Leeds because they they have to unscrew all their rig and they can't get their lights in and there's a lot of complaining. Well, it's not actually a stage, is it? Really, in that respect, it's just. Uh... It's uh, it's a funny not a funny room because it's a it's fine room and it always sounds great uh, and it's and it's easy in and out with where it is but um, mm. but it's it's not it, you're right it's not much of a stage area no there's not a lot of room to swing a cricket bat no no and you do swing a cricket bat when I can yes given it, give it half a chance given half a chance and occasionally when I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Well, I think we'll we'll kind of leave it there. Um, I mean, it's been a, it's been a bit of a m- momentous week, really. I mean, tooth's been sorted. Uh, yep, yeah, yeah. I'll just all, bang on it to prove. All, yep. all there. We've 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 got through the latter stages of writing, and recording, and releasing, and doing promo videos for an album. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we've cracked on quite a bit in terms of the season's end story. What I do want to come back to next week, though, is, um, and, and we won't keep going on season's end indefinitely, but the one thing I would like to talk about is that first Marillion tour, um, because that must have been quite a lot of new experiences for you in terms of, you know, the kind of venues you were playing, um, the whole setup, the you know, what was involved with the band going out on the road. They were reasonable size the regional size places weren't they that you played um, yeah yeah well in theory it was a it was a whole new experience and a leg up and a whole other level of professionalism and all of that for me to slot into um in practice however 
dot, dot, dot. I'm going to leave that hanging there. Leave that hanging there till next week. And we'll find out about the trials and tribulations of the season's end till. <laughs> Folks. Right, well, I'll see you next week. Righty, how at? Well, have, uh, a, have a lovely week. And, have you got anything exciting planned? You're not in the studio this week, are you? No, not in the studio this week. So, uh, no, I've got... I mean, I might, I might have a little tinker about with... Um, we've got new song ideas now to a point where they're tinker about withable. And so I might tinker about with some of the ideas um, a little bit, see if I can develop them a bit musically and lyrically. Um, it's quite an exciting time, this, because y you start to... You know, it's if building a house, it's like you've you've got the drains in. You've done all the dirty stuff below ground. Uh, you know, you've got you've got the damp course in, um, and uh, you you you've you've got a pretty good good schematic diagram of what, what it's going to look like. But there's still plenty of room to uh, change the shape of it a bit. Mm. As you get stuck in with the bricks, so we're mm. we're we're you know we've got the bricks out at this point. No mm. more muddy work. The bricks are out, so I might I might do a bit of I might do a bit of that, a bit of brick laying, and um, I'll probably go. I'm going to catch up with my grandson this week as well, oh, somewhere Ronnie. in a in a field or a play park or something. Still not allowed in the house, obviously. Yeah. But I have been jabbed now, so I think I'm fairly safe. But, we, you know, you've got to follow the rules, isn't it? You've got to follow the rules. Follow the rules. Think of everyone else. It's yeah. not all about me, even though no. I'm a singer. No, it's not all about you, not even on your own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to leave you. I'll leave you to find your trowel. Okay, I'll go and get my mixer going. And I'll uh, see what I did there. That was a pun. Yeah, no, I, it was very, it was very good. I'll see it. It was, it was an accident. I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Uh, toodaloo. I'm going to press stop now. I'm pressing stop now. Thank you, Jennifer Tyler. Thank you, Mike Briggs and Miles Schofield. Thank you, Raymondo Paiva Jr. And thank you to Terry Newcomb from Norway. Thanks very much for the feeling but deeper. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. 
You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>